I got till quarter to twelve. Yay! I'll put these notes here. Chances of looking at them are very slim. But uh, I'll keep them there just in case I run out of words. Somebody on the way out last week, a regular attender here, and said, I understand you're speaking next week. I said, well, it would appear so. I see he's not here this week. You know, Kevin was talking about dreams and things, and as I've been preparing this sermon, and I think of the sort of think of the chapel and the congregation, and you know, it kept coming back all the time. Just seeing this vision of Jenny and Julie, we're all going on a seminar. You know, you shouldn't have said that. I, <clears throat> I looked up. We went to. We saw Cliff Richard in pantomime at the London Palladium. <clears throat> and I had to go back, well, I had to look it up in, on the internet, actually. 1964, Christmas 1964. And you know we have a pantomime at Painter normally lasts about five days. Well, this pantomime with Cliff and the Shadows, and it went from the 22nd of December till the end of April. And it was a sellout every night. And we went back again two years later in 66 and saw him in another pantomime. And the same happened, you know, he was very big. He was, and, uh, you know, my, I shouldn't really don't know if I should say this from the pulpit, but my love for rock and roll music is, is no, no, it doesn't know any bounds. I'm not talking about heavy metal and that sort of trash. I'm talking about pure, pure rock and roll, you know, from the mid 50s through to the early 60s. And it knows no bounds. And I have to say that, you know, dear old Cliff, he certainly was the best that Britain ever produced. Still miles behind Elvis, of course, but, uh, <laughs> but still the best that we produced. And I think he's been a good example, hasn't he? I think he's been a good witness for the Lord Jesus over the years since he became a Christian. We saw him at Billy Graham a couple of times. And uh, I must admit, I was... A, I guess stuff gets edited, but in the recent news with his, with his recent court case, I was a little bit disappointed in, he, when he was interviewed and I didn't hear him mention, I don't think I even heard him mention the word faith. I don't know. It seemed a little bit strange, but uh, maybe. I don't know. But uh, I didn't quite understand whenever I saw him on the telly speaking to people, he kept doing all this sort of business. Did you know? I didn't. <clears throat> anyway, that's by the by. I still think he's been a good witness for the Lord over the years. And he still sings good rock and roll music. He stayed, he stayed true to it. So thank you for reminding me of that. It took me back. Yeah. You know, Kevin talked about 1850s. I think all my record collection is 1950s. But that's where... So here we are. It, it's, it's not an easy passage. And it's not... In fact, the whole thing uh, where Jesus starts talking here... Uh, from verse, I guess, from verse 23, uh, chapter 23 onwards, really, um, where he, he has the, where we read of the seven woes, as he really lays into the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, uh, giving them really no room for manoeuvre, and, and, and um, dreadful things in many respects that Jesus says about them and fully deserved, because they really had weighed these people down. As we heard the wonderful sermon from Matt last week of the, you know, the buried talent, how they had 
really, the, the, it was, again, it was having a go at the Pharisees where the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day had buried the good news. Had buried the good news. And the people couldn't see it. And they were, they were losing out. And really, Jesus just summarises it all um, in this last chapter with the two parables, the, 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 the um, ten virgins and the, the parable of the talents. And now we come into the sheep and goats. Not truly a parable, uh, but there is some metaphor and some uh, parabolic examples used in it. Um, but I think the, 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 the uh, verses that I'd like to read, just to, just to lead us into this, come, uh, don't, don't look them out unless you want to, but it's in chapter 23. And it's the first four verses of chapter 23. And it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads, put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Do not do as they say, sorry, do not do as they do. Poor example that they were to the people. And Jesus had laid into them with the seven woes after that and then told these two stories, I think with the, with the ten virgins and the talent, parable of the talents, both really referring back and, 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 and having further criticism, as it were, of the, of the religious leaders and in particular the scribes and the Pharisees. So here we come now to the last piece. It's just uh, the verses from 20, chapter 25 through 31 through to 46. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and, and, and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes to clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of these, least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, 
but the righteous to eternal life. Left and right, sheep and goats. Starts off, doesn't it? When the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. Jesus is not speaking about his second coming. He's speaking, I believe, now about his resurrection. Because if we believe that Jesus is today seated on his throne in glory, that is what this verse is referring to. Because you must remember that at this stage he hadn't uh, ascended to the Father. He was speaking futuristic, even though it may only be a week or two down the line. So when the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him, which they are. He sees it all. The nations are gathered before him now. And he sits on his throne. And it is whatever we do in this life that God will discern what happens to us. It's interesting, isn't it? Because at the start of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus proclaims that he has been given all authority on earth. But at the end of Matthew's chapter, right at the end there in chapter 28, verse 18, he has now been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So there he is. All nations are there. People, all the people that on earth do dwell. We are being observed day by day. And whether we stand to his right or to his left will depend solely upon what we have done with this life that we have been given here on earth. If you're old enough to remember Cliff Richard in his heyday, you're probably old enough to remember there was a satirical program uh, on the TV at that time with David Frost called Not So Much a Program, More a Way of Life. I always remember passing a church on my way to work, a big church in London, great big banner outside, Christianity. Not so much a program, more a way of life. More a way of life. There's a great danger, and I quote this, that's why I'm reading it. There's a great danger that people will regard Christianity as a, a kind of heavenly examination system. God, so people imagine, has given us a syllabus to study, things to learn and do, rules to keep. One day he'll come and set a final examination and see who passes and who fails. And Jesus warns the scribes and Pharisees who impose such a view that even tax collectors and prostitutes, those who would have failed any such exam, would enter heaven before the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not a set of rules. It's not a syllabus. It's about a person. It's about a person and what he did for us. And here he is speaking. Sheep and goats, a bit of a metaphor, but it's not a... It's just an example. And it's a good example in so much that in those days that Jesus was talking, and I don't know, it may be the same today. If any of you have been to Israel, you probably know... <coughs> I've got so little, being a, being a townie, I've got very little 
knowledge of, of, of uh, farm life or, or rural life. But as I understand it, the sheep and the goats out there in that particular country are not very easy to tell apart, especially when the sheep have been sheared. And they mix together, they herd together, they eat together. The shepherd looks after them all together. But come the end of the day, come the end of the day, there has to be a separation. Because the sheep are a little more hardy than goats. So it's a little bit, oh, it's a little bit opposite, isn't it? It makes you think, because you think to yourself, well, hold on a minute, if the goats need more looking after, then surely Jesus has got that round the wrong way, that he's going to look after the sheep and the goats, not the goats. But no, it's just used, I think that's used just to make us think. And it's not important. They're, they're, they're incidental, really, to the story, the fact that he chose sheep and goats. But it's a handy illustration. It's a handy illustration because they live together until the day, until the end of the day when their separation comes. Do you know how they tell the difference between a sheep and a goat when they were all mixed together like that, if loads of them? You, you, you know, you, when you come here, you learn so much, don't you? But I'm going to tell you now. The way the, well, they could take the sound. But I'll tell you this. The quick way to notice, yeah? Well, a sheep's tail hangs down and a goat's tail sticks up. You know that? Right, now you know how to tell the difference. If there's a load of them together, you'll know. I know the difference because mint sauce goes better with lamb than it does with goat. <coughs> but here we are. Here we are. When he comes into his kingdom, this is how it will be. And, you know, there's many examples... I'm, I speak to Darren at home, um, much more knowledgeable in these sort of things than I am. Not so much scripture, but certainly in, in, in words that are used in this. There's a word that they, that they use, these, these biblical scholars, called typology. And it means there's certain types. There's things in the Bible that can be compared. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's scripture. I think somewhere along the line uh, that Moses is described as a type of Christ. Not Jesus, but a type of Christ, because he, he released his people. That's how the, 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 the thing was similar. What Moses did in the Old Testament for the Jews as he released them from slavery was the same as what Jesus did on the cross as he released sinners from slavery of sin. So there's a type, and it's a typology. And I think this story is a, is a, is a sort of typology of end times. I don't think Jesus is talking about end times here as such. Because in the previous uh, chapter, he'd been speaking to his disciples, and you remember that he said, this generation will not pass away until all these things are done. And he was obviously talking about the, the Roman invasion and the devastation of Israel and Jerusalem in AD 70, which was only, I don't know, 40 years down the line for where Jesus was talking here. And I don't know, if you, it, it would be interesting, if you're interested in it at all, get home, and when you look on the internet, look up the Roman-Judean War of AD 70. Because Jesus said it's going to be a terrible thing, something like has never been seen before. And when you read it, and Josephus, the, the Jewish historian of the time, records it, and the siege of Jerusalem, and what they went through, and you remember Jesus told the people to flee. And if, you, you know, if you're up on the roof, don't bother going down into the house. Just, just get out. 
And it's a typology of end times. Although I believe that was God's judgment upon the Jewish nation then, in AD 70, a similar thing will happen at the end of time. Not necessarily exactly the same, but it's a typology. And Jesus is giving this here, this this separation between the sheep and the goats. And what about this, when you saw me, what were the verses? Uh, Where were we? I needed clothes. No, let's go back a bit further. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we? When did we? This is not Jesus advocating good works for salvation. Let's make that very, very clear. All these things are good things in themselves. But he's not talking salvation. He's not talking good works. And why did the people say, when did we see you? When did we see you, Lord, with no food and no drink and no clothes? And because he says, whenever you did it. You ever wondered that? I mean, let's be honest, none of us go around every minute of every day with Jesus foremost in our thoughts, do we? I don't know if anyone could honestly claim that. Maybe we should, but I certainly couldn't claim it. And from these particular verses, it would appear that Jesus really doesn't expect it either. Because all these good things were done, and the people doing them didn't recognise who they were doing them for. They were just automatically doing them. And isn't that how our Christianity should sit with us? (coughs) We're not saved by good works. Let's make that very, very clear. But we are saved for good works. And our good works are proof of our salvation. But we shouldn't have to think twice about doing them. We shouldn't have to stop and think, oh, would the Lord want me to do this? Because it's automatic. As we are saved and, that, and the Holy Spirit is within us day by day and even though our thoughts may not be concentrated on him at a particular time, simply because our very being is governed by the Holy Spirit, then these works are done. And the exact opposite. If they're not, then these works won't be done. And Jesus is having a go still at these Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of the day. Don't do as they do. You've got to do as they say because they are promoting the law and they sit in the seat of Moses. But for goodness sake, don't copy them. Don't do as they do because they don't do. It's as simple as that. Those verses that we read at the start, wasn't it? They've loaded you up with so much and yet they don't lift a finger to help. 
this typology. Jesus is just t- telling them, he's just talking to his disciples, not talking to a crowd now. He's talking to men who have been with him for the three years or so that his ministry has been ongoing. And these were the guys who were going to take on the mantle of proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And these were the people who would see Jesus vindicated. If, like me, you're not sure the meaning of the word vindicate, I did write it down somewhere, I don't. <laughs> oh, here we go. Yes, I knew I did. Vindication, to clear of accusation, blame or suspicion or doubt with supporting arguments or proof. These were the guys who would see Jesus vindicated. How was Jesus vindicated? In his resurrection. Paul tells us in Romans 1 verse 4, he was risen, he rose to life by the Spirit and he was vindicated. All that he had preached about himself over those three years came true. It was proof that God had raised him from the dead. And these were the disciples, these were the people who would see it. And as he was telling them, and he claimed to be through his resurrection, his ascension, and also through his prophetic teaching in chapters 23 and 24, as he told them about this, this disaster that would come upon Jerusalem. And what a dreadful thing it was. And they would live through it. They would live through it. And there would be need of good works. They were wicked, wicked, sorry, they would witness uh, the desolation of Jerusalem and Herod's temple. It's very interesting, you know. What was it Jesus said about the temple when the disciples, just a few uh, verses prior to, prior to this, and the disciples had said to Jesus, look at this building. Isn't it magnificent? And it was. If you read the, the um, again, I think it's Josephus, uh, the historian of the day, uh, described the temple that Herod had built. Uh, as magnificent. It was a place where people, even though they didn't worship there, would come and look at it because of its finery and how beautiful it was. And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you this. When this desolation comes, there will not be a stone left upon another stone. And if you look up, <laughs> marvellous thing, isn't it? If you look up archaeology of the Jerusalem temple you will find that they've never really been able to do any archaeological, archaeological. They've done digging, but they've never been able to prove that a temple actually existed. Not proof. They found one or two um, bits and pieces that would indicate that there was one there. Um, they found, uh, apparently, they found one or two uh, signs, and one of the signs that there's specifically there was the one that was said that the Gentiles weren't allowed into the Holy of Holies or in the Holy Place. Um, but they haven't been able to do it. They haven't been able to properly do an archaeological dig on the temple. Now, admittedly, stuff has been built over it, but I reckon they haven't been able to do a proper one because all archaeologists need something to start on to actually prove that something has been there and to build upon but there was no stone left upon another. So I don't honestly think, and this is pure speculation, don't go building any doctrine on it, because you'll be wrong, 
pure speculation, I don't believe they ever will be able to. Because the temple was destroyed and not one stone was left standing upon another. Words of Jesus. Jesus speaks of here doing it for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters. Who were his brothers and sisters? Matthew 10 verse 48, look here are my mother and brothers. Yes, anyone who does what my father in heaven wants is my brother, sister and mother. Very important message this. Because this was, the, Jesus as I say was, was mainly thinking around terms of the destruction of the temple and, and the, the uh, and, uh, Jerusalem. And these people, as he was talking about helping one another in his name, and yes, they need, need to help one another. They would, have needed, they would have needed one another more than ever. And there's a great, I think it's a great teaching that runs throughout Scripture through, through Christ's teaching. That we look after one another. Yes, we're to take the gospel into the world. Yes, we are to preach good news. But it's very important that we care for one another. Certainly on a spiritual basis, but also on a physical basis. What did Jesus say? Love one another. And if you love one another, and if the world sees that you love one another, then you will know, they will know, not we will know, they will know that we are his disciples. Christ is vindicated through his death, his resurrection and ascension. Jesus is alive, keeping an ever watchful eye. Quote this, even when we don't think we are being watched, even when we don't think we are being watched, we can never forget that much is expected of those from those to whom much is given. So different, isn't it? You know, when you consider that the just one example, really, which is, is, is so often used, but the law on the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On it, you should do no, we should work for six days a week and on the seventh rest, and yeah, your, your man servants and your maid servants and your cattle, and goodness knows what, mustn't work. Quite easy for them in their days to keep to that command. But by the time we got down to the time of Jesus, there were somewhere in the region of 600 laws surrounding the Sabbath day. Not possible to keep. And that is why, the, why Paul says, you know, that, that the law is dead. Even God would not expect that of a man or woman. 
And that's what the Pharisees and the scribes had done. They'd laid, they'd laid so much on people. And as we learned last week, they, they, that has been buried, you know, it was buried, the talent of the, of, of the salvation and the good news had been buried underneath all this law. And the people just couldn't see it. Couldn't see the good news. They, these, these, these scribes and Pharisees hadn't done what they should have been doing. They hadn't prepared these people for the coming of the Messiah. They hadn't got the people ready. So concerned with people keeping the law and doing what was right by the law. And when Jesus came, they weren't ready. And it will be like that at the end times. And this is where the typology comes in. Are people ready? Even as Christians, are, are you ready? Watch and wait. And what are we doing? Has the church been guilty in many respects of, 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 of weighing people down again and burying the good news? We very much live in a day of this social, social gospel. We've lived, well, still living in the, gay, in the, in the day and age of the, <coughs> of the prosperity gospel. How much of the teachings of Jesus Christ do we hear preached? And I'm talking about teachings of Jesus Christ. Not talking about doing good, not talking about giving people water to drink and food to eat and clothes to wear. First and foremost, it has got to be about him. Why was it important that they did these things? Because they were doing it for him. And when you do a good deed, you're doing it for Jesus. It's strange, isn't it, how we, we do something and we think, well, that's good. We've done that and that's... I, I, I detest this term, Christian duty. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees did to these people, wasn't it? They gave them laws and it was their duty to keep them. It's not a duty. It's an act of love. And there's a big difference. And it's the fact that we have the Lord Jesus Christ within us through the Holy Spirit that our, that our lives should, should be saturated in this love to such an extent that we are like these people when we do a good deed and Jesus says, you did that for me. Oh, did I? Thank you. It becomes a burden if you're doing it just because you want to do it as a duty, just because you feel you've got to do it. Sometimes the opportunities come when we're doing good deeds to... Sometimes it sounds a bit boastful when you say it, but I mean, sometimes we do a good deed and we get the opportunity, don't we? Of being able to share with somebody why you've done it. Why you felt there was a need to do it. <clears throat> I'm sure I've quoted this story before. 
Because as you get older, you do tend to quote things time after time after time. But I always remember a preacher coming to our church and telling us how at some time in the past, a little while, I don't know if it was days or weeks, but whatever, it was fairly recent because he remembered it well, how he went through a, a, a checkout in a supermarket. And as he pushed his trolley through, he realised he had a bag of potatoes in that he hadn't paid for. So he went back to the checkout girl and said, oh, she said, I haven't paid for these. And she said, oh, gosh, she said, you're honest. And as quick as a flash, and he didn't even realise he was doing it, as quick as a flash, he said, oh, it's amazing, you know, what Jesus Christ can do in a person's life. You do get the opportunities to witness as we do these good deeds. Don't let it get buried. Don't let it get buried. Forget the law. Forget the law, it's dead. Our salvation is in Jesus Christ. We have that freedom. Not a freedom to do what we like. We have that freedom to do what he wants us to do. If we're to be his brothers and sisters, we do what things what the Lord wants us to do for the sake of his kingdom. That's how we come, a brother or a sister, an heir to the throne through Jesus Christ. Through doing what God wants us to do for the sake of his kingdom. You're going to ask yourself this morning, and you will know, you will know, are you on the right side or the left side? Very interesting. He says to those on the right, which is a sheep, but that's incidental. He says to those on the right, enter into the place that has been prepared for you since the foundation of the world. That's why it says God is not willing that any should suffer because he prepared that place for all mankind. But it all went wrong. And what he says to those on the left, you will be thrown into the fire, the everlasting fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. God had to prepare hell. It wasn't there from the beginning of time. He had to prepare it when it all went wrong. I'm not preaching good news because you're looking very sad. But the good news is that it's in your hands. It's your choice. You know, God isn't... God isn't saying, I, 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 dare I say it? I do not believe in predestination. I believe that God has given us the privilege of making that choice for ourselves. And if you're in the line with the goats, it's your choice. If you're in the line with the sheep, that is your choice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever 
believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So you can choose whether you put on the wall or you don't. It's a difficult passage and it's, a, it's, a, it's the end of, of Matthew's Gospel. There. It's really the last of teaching because it was that last week of Jesus after he'd ridden into Jerusalem and we're just two, he's talking there and he's just two days away from being hauled before the Sanhedrin. But there's a wealth packed into that last week, a wealth of, of, of Christian, bi- biblical teaching. There's a wealth of, 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 of what we need to know about the Lord Jesus and about uh, eternity. You know, we're not given the two ends of the Bible. It's funny, isn't it, really? We're... The two ends of the Bible which cause the most controversy are the two ends that we really know so little about. The creation and end times. And that's most of the, the teaching from those two is where Christians and, and, and religions and denominations have fallen out over them. But the simple fact of the matter is this, that Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming again because he's promised And he's been vindicated. All his promises have come true. Where will you stand? Where will you stand? There's this example of end times. You'll either be on his right hand or you'll be on his left.